0: So glad that you all joined us here. And uh, I'm the senior pastor here at the church. And I'd just like to introduce uh, Martin and Rob. Uh, good, just been great mentors to me and friends and teachers. And uh, just really looking forward to what God will say and do uh, this weekend in our lives. So glad you all came out. So welcome them. Thanks, Abe. Thank you. I'm going to start like we're in a historic black church because on a Sunday morning when you start there you always have to give glory to God and then honor to the pastor and if you look around it's an odd way to start you clearly are not a historic black church Um, but I just want to say well done Nate on a Friday night to have people come out so thank you and uh, it's been fun to be a part of uh this life for a long time and to see what uh, God is doing here and how well you are responding. And so for some of you who've been here a long time, I'm simply Bo's dad. <laughs> and um, I remember being here one time and there was, a, it was probably a high school girl. She was standing around, I was talking, she goes, you're just like Bo. He said, uh, actually, I was first, and uh, I'm, I'm a bit of the proto- prototype, so I want to take a little bit of credit here. And for those of you who don't know, Bo, that's, that's fine. We are, um, Rob and I are both at, uh, at uh, NIAC. I run doctoral programs, and he'll tell you a bit of what he does. We've been doing these for some time. Started under the umbrella of global leadership, organization that I uh, started uh, more than 20 years ago where we do intentional mentoring and leadership development internationally. And discovered that so many of the leaders needed coaching on how to welcome the spirit into their own life and into their own ministries. And so we got started doing this to help leaders discover how to do this in their context. Then churches started saying, "Will will you help us with these? And so that's how we've gotten started. Uh, For any of you who are really marketing people, as you could tell, we probably need some help with marketing. We've just kept them very direct. Holy Spirit weekend. That way everybody knows what we're out for. Here's how they simply work, if I may. Um, The Spirit of God wants this divine partnership with you. Your human spirit, His Holy Spirit, come together a divine partnership. As you know, he does his work so well. And he's saying to you, come. Come be with me. Come. Let's do this together. No longer in your strength. Let's put down the excuses. Let's put down anything that's a block or a barrier. And let's do this one together. A long time ago, probably more than 20 years ago, I was doing a partnership conference with Ravi Zachariasen. And, and he's got a unique uh, following. That's fair to say. And uh, there were a couple of women came at breakfast and said, uh, can we have lunch with you? And I said, it's already booked, but I'll do dessert with you. Uh, how, how, ma- how many are there? Maybe oh, us and a couple friends. And I showed up for dessert and there were 60 people there. Apparently, they had way more friends than they knew. And they wanted to talk about the Holy Spirit. And I said, Ravi's here. Talk talk to him. And they said, well, we kind of wanted to talk to you about this. And so they began to ask questions. We no sooner got started. And one of the women came almost up out of her seat. And she said, but I don't want to speak in tongues. And I said, okay, um... I hadn't brought it up, wasn't planning on it. But since you did, why that response? She goes, I, I just don't want to go there. And I said, can, can I tell you why that response? And she said, I sent you'll tell me whether I want you to or not. She said, okay. The, the issue is you have framed in your head this would feel to you like you're out of control. And you won't do anything to put you out of control. And I said, I I was far too young to know this, but before I was 25, I had this developing understanding that kind of all the Spirit wants is just control of your life. At its very core, that's what the Holy Spirit is asking for. Give me access, give me control, let's do the partnership. We always do things in teams, So we'll partner together. Sometimes it'll be Rob's PowerPoint, sometimes mine. And we tag team back and forth. One of the great things about Rob you'll discover is that as the team has come together, always moving parts, people come in and out. Rob has emerged as sort of, one of the emerging uh, on a national and somewhat international scale as well. Sort of one of the emerging experts on uh, the spirits Uh, Presence and control in your life, and also soul care. Some of you have read the book and more. So, uh, tonight we're going to get started with how do you begin to give access and control over to the Spirit.
1: When I first started doing Holy Spirit weekends, it was at South Shore Community Church, Mm -hmm. and I called up my buddy Martin and I just said to him, I said, listen, I said, I'm noticing something with my church people and evangelical church people in general. And this is what I noticed. They have good doctrine, good theological, cognitive understandings of the things of the Spirit, but they haven't figured out how yet to integrate those truths into their daily existence. So what I'm saying is they believe the right stuff, but it isn't showing up in the way they live. And I said, I want to do a Holy Spirit weekend where we teach on the Holy Spirit and then create lab time where they can actually begin to experiment in some of these things that the Bible teaches about on the Spirit. He goes, that sounds like fun. So um, we invited Ron Walborn, Dean of the Seminary to join us and we've been doing these, I don't know, 15 years or so. But I started noticing something very early in the process. And this is what I would notice. We would pray for people. And when we would pray for people, I could see the Holy Spirit come upon them. I could see it sometimes because, you know, you'd pray for them and all of a sudden they'd just start crying as they were experiencing God's presence and His love. Other times you'd pray for them and they would literally shake into, you know, sort of the presence of God. Sometimes, you know, now more often than in the beginning, but we would pray for people and they'd fall under the weight of God's presence. In case you've missed that, that's a biblical concept. It happens in the Bible. For example, John, the apostle, this is John, the one who lays his head on Jesus' breast when he runs into the risen Christ, falls like a dead man. He is, you know, I think where they got the phrase, slain in the spirit. Or Ezekiel, for example, multiple times in the book of Ezekiel, falls on his face underneath the kabbad, the heavy presence of God, the glory of God. This is a biblical concept. By the way, for those of you who are part of the Christian Missionary Alliance, the early days in the CMA, this was a regular thing that was occurring. They called it prostration, okay? Not like you have prostate problems, just to clarify, prostration, okay? And uh, early days of the CMA, this was happening as well. So anyways, we'd see these things, but then here's what I noticed. Six months down the road, people weren't changed, And I went to the Lord with it and I went, this isn't right. There's no way someone should encounter your presence in such a powerful way and not be transformed by it. What's going on? And I heard the Holy Spirit whisper to me, said to me, I can come upon them, but there's no room for me to expand within them. They're already full. That led me to this image. Your soul is like a suitcase. And I travel a lot these days. And when I travel, you know, usually I take a suitcase with me. At the beginning of the trip, the suitcase is all nice and neat. It's packed. Everything's clean. It's folded. It's put away neat and tidy. End of the trip, everything's dirty, man. I don't pack it. I just chuck it all back in. It's all in there. It's just enough to get in. I take it home. I get home. I'm happy to see the family. But sooner or later, I have to empty out the suitcase. Because if I don't empty out the suitcase, when I go to take the next trip, there's no room to put in the new clothes, nice, neat, tidy, clean clothes. Listen, what the Holy Spirit wants to do is He wants to empty the suitcase so He can fill you with His presence, with His peace, with His love. But for so many people, He can't fill them because there's no room in the suitcase. And what I want to talk tonight about is giving God access. I would argue that the thing God most wants from your life and mine is simply access. And the way it looks is he starts to look at the things in your suitcase and he wants to begin to unpack it. And so I want to look tonight at three things he wants to unpack from the suitcase. We could look at a bunch of different things, but we want to start with three. And to do so, we want to start with a scripture, 1 John chapter 1. Would you turn there with me in your Bibles? I'm going to have you look at a couple of passages, but this one is where I want to start. 1 John chapter 1, beginning at verse 5. And I don't care, you know, you, you've got iPhones and all kinds of little technical devices so you can look them you up so many of you have on. these passages all memorized anyway. True. Yeah. So. This is the Apostle John, and this is what he writes. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. Don't you wish John was more direct? (laughs) So subtle. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. By the way, if you're tracking with John's logic just then, he jumped logic tracks on you. That's not what he should have said. This is what he says in the passage. God is light, and in him there's no darkness. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, what he should have said is we'll have fellowship with him. But he didn't. What he said was, God is light, and in him there's no darkness. If we walk in the light to see us in the light, we'll have fellowship with one another. He shouldn't have said that. So the question you have to ask is, what presupposition does John have in his mind that he would assume that we would then have fellowship with one another? And here's my argument. What John is assuming is simply this. If you were really in the light with God, you would not pretend to be something other than you are with other people. But if you are pretending to be better than you are with someone else, it is really because you're proud. And if you are proud, you are not in the light with God at all because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And if I'm going to give God access, the way it starts is the Holy Spirit takes the light of God and he shines it in the suitcase of my soul. And all he's looking to do is never make you feel bad but to get you free. So he shines this spotlight inside the suitcase of the soul. And you know what? Most of the suitcases, there's some good stuff in there. You have some nice, neat, clean clothes in there. There's some fruit of the Holy Spirit in there. There's some good service deeds you're doing in there. And then there's that other stuff that's also in there. And what the Holy Spirit does, he shines it on that other thing. Again, not to make you feel bad, but to get you free. And he says, that thing right there, see that secret? If you don't give me access to that, I can't occupy that territory of your heart and soul. The one thing God most wants in your life and mine is access. He wants to shine his light in your inner being and have full access. No resistance, no rebellion, no refusals, no denials. No justifications, no rationalizations, no spin, just access. And when you give him access, then he starts doing the deeper work. And so we want to look at three things that God wants access to. Here's the first. God wants access to your sin. Again, I just I want to say it one more time. Not to make you feel bad or condemn you but to get you free. So what he's asking for when he points out sin in my life or your life, he simply asks me to look at that thing and go, yes, God, that's true about me. That's all he's asking for. And then give it to him and start to work with him. David Benner made this statement. He's a Christian psychologist from Canada. He said, the self that God persistently loves is not my prettied up pretend self but my actual self, the real me. But master of delusion that I am, I have trouble penetrating my web of self-deceptions and knowing this real me. I continually confuse it with some ideal self that I wish I were." All God wants, he wants you to shine that light inside. He wants to shine it in there, and he just wants us to go, yes, God, that's true. And then what he wants from me is to walk that thing out with people like Martin. One of
0: the things we have learned is that very often, even even really good people, like those of us in this room, we, we often will um, be our most honest when somehow we humanly get caught. Now, what we've discovered is when people get caught, their ability to actual change is relatively low, because they're just exposed. But when people come and admit to whatever, if there's a willing spirit, and of course in Psalm 51, that's what David, who needed to change, said, God, will you give me a willing spirit to sustain me? The other thing we've discovered is that most of the time what we begin with is the sanitized version of our sin. The part that's the easiest uh, or the safest to talk about I was telling Rob at dinner, uh, had a conversation with a leader, just this last week, and they started, and I waited for a little bit and stopped them. And I said, have you, have you, have you ever seen Men in Black movie? Where they, they push a button and they forget what happened? I said, we're going to do that. I just pushed the button. Now let's start over. Give me the real story. Not this one. Give me the real one. So we can get someplace. What came next was very different than the first three sentences. So again, as Rob said, this is never to expose you, make you feel dreadful. It's to get this access, yeah.
1: to get rid of the clutter. God cannot cleanse our excuses nor pardon our denials. He can only cleanse that which we confess, he can only heal that which we will admit. There is no freedom without forgiveness, there's no forgiveness without repentance, hiding creates darkness, and darkness destroys the soul. So the one thing he really wants is he just wants you to admit sin. Now hear me for a second. There are times when we confess our sin, but we don't feel forgiven. Now, let's have a really honest conversation, just me and you. We can ignore everybody else in the room for a second. How many of you have ever confessed a sin? You committed it one time in your life, but you confessed it many times. How many of you ever done that? Okay. Now, work with me for a second. Theologically, you know that when you confess that sin, he is faithful and just, will forgive you your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So you know the moment you confessed it, it was cleansed. Why did you confess it more than once? Talk to me, literally, out loud. Why did you confess it more than once? Because I never felt connected to it. I never felt that I was connected to it. What? Go ahead. Others? Guilt. Others? Shame. Who said shame? Number one answer. Let me help you for a second. The number one reason why we confess over and over is because of shame. I cannot tell you how many times doing what I do... People come up to me, and, and in the midst of something like this, when I'm teaching on something like this, someone will come up to me, eyes down, cannot look me in the face, and they'll make this statement. I've confessed this sin hundreds of times before. I have never, ever had a single human being say that to me, and I've heard that statement literally hundreds of times. I've never had one person say that to me and look me in the eyes. Not once. Or this one. I have confessed this sin uh, thousands of times before to God alone, but I've never told anyone else. I've never told anyone this before. Every time someone says that to me, the eyes are down, they're shuffling, there's tears, that's shame. Shame is a powerful emotion. I had a woman come up to me one day when I was at church, I had been preaching on this kind of stuff, and she came up to me afterwards, oh, all the affect, man, the eyes are down, she can't look me in, in the eyes, she's tearing up already, and she said to me, can I meet with you this week? I said, sure, Be happy to meet with you. We set an appointment, it was like on a Wednesday morning or something like that. She comes into the office, the moment she walks through the door, eyes down, still can't look at me, tears are already flowing, and uh, I'm sitting there with her just waiting, I'm not, nothing I can do to help her this has got to come from her mouth, not mine. And so I waited, and finally she made this statement. I have confessed this sin every day of my life for 20 years. Now, I want you to hear me. The first time she confessed it, it was forgiven. The problem was not forgiveness. The problem was shame." You know what we do too often when we're, on a, you know, sort of ministering to someone, whether it's a friend or we're on a prayer team and in a small group leader, and we try to help someone with that? We quote 1 John 1. "Ah, well, you know, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just, will forgive you your sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. No offense, but do you know how many times they've memorized that verse? That's not helpful. You know what? They need revelation. The greatest gaps in your Christian life are in the areas where you know things but have not yet experienced the revelation of the Holy Spirit. And I knew. Like, this lady didn't need me to quote the verse. She had memorized the verse. I just looked at her, and I I waited on the Lord. Listen, theology 101. God is smart. He knows stuff I don't know. And he likes to tell me. So I waited. I didn't know what to do. Any more than you would know what to do. I waited for a minute, and I heard the Holy Spirit say, ask her to go back to the scene of the crime. So I said to her, I said, do you know do you remember the abortion clinic? She told me she had had an abortion. That's, that was the issue. And I said, do you remember the abortion clinic? She said, yeah, of course. I've lived there every day of my life. I said, okay. I said, I want you to picture the scene. Just close your eyes and picture the scene. And so she's got her eyes closed. She's describing the scene. She's describing the paint on the walls, the colors of the carpet and the room, the smells, the sights, the sounds, the emotional impact of this moment. And as she's describing this to me, you know, again, there's tears flowing as she's describing it. I said to her, I said, listen, Jesus was with you that day. He's always there. I said, I'm just gonna pray a simple prayer. I'm gonna ask the Holy Spirit to show you where Jesus was. That's all. You've got this memory. I'm gonna ask him to reveal Jesus. Do you remember the Old Testament passage where Elijah can see into the spiritual realm and he sees the angels, but his servant Gehazi can't see anything? And he prays that the Lord would open up his hearts and then he, the servant, sees. Do you remember that story? It's a, good, it's a good book, really, the Bible. You ought to read it. It's really good. It's got a lot of good right, stuff in it. Write it down. That's B-I-B-L-E. It's a good You'll book. think
0: you'll remember,
1: but it's a, you won't. It's a write good it down. Book. Read it. So anyways, uh, I prayed that prayer. Lord, open her eyes, and she lost it. I mean, started sobbing. And listen, I, I waited her out for 45 minutes. She did not come up prayer for 45 minutes. Hear me. This is what I did not do. I didn't pat her on the back and go, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Can I tell you something? 20 years of confession? It's not okay. And I just let the Holy Spirit do his thing. You know what I did? I checked my email. I mean, she didn't need me, so I'm just, you know, doing some other work, waiting out. I mean, God was doing his thing. I'm waiting her out, and I waited until 45 minutes. 45 minutes. She finally stopped. She went, (gasps) and I knew she was coming to a close. and then I said to her, tell me what happened. This is a story she told me. She said, I saw Jesus walk into the back of the room, and he was holding my baby. He said to me, I have your son. He is with me in heaven. He has forgiven you, and so have I. He is not angry at you, and neither am I. I don't ever want you to confess this to me again. I have cared for it. Ten years later, I had another conversation, a follow-up with this lady. She came up to me, and she said to me, Do you remember that day you met with me? I said, Oh, yeah, I remember that day. I said, There's a lot of days in ministries I want to forget, and there's other days I have forgotten, but that day I'll never forget. She said to me, You know, that was the last time I ever confessed that sin before the Lord. You know why? Revelation. Hear me for a second. One of the reasons why I started doing Holy Spirit weekends is because people were missing the revelation. They had truth without revelation, and truth without revelation from the Holy Spirit will not lead you to freedom. You must have revelation. Does this make sense? Even if it doesn't, it's true, okay? Um, The good news is Jesus paid for our forgiveness, not only so that we would know about it cognitively, but so that we would experience it. Now, our job is to give him access and then to walk in the light, according to 1 John, with God and others. So both of us, you know, we have this thing where we believe people need to have a few close friends with whom they have a no pretending policy. They're just completely open and honest. Listen, this week we got together. Uh, we were together two nights ago, we were together last night, and we're together all this weekend. And uh, Martin's one of my best friends in the entire world. It's just, he's just a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful friend for me. But one of the things we do almost, I would say at least monthly, in our times together, is we will have a moment where this statement comes up. We need to update our confessions. And this week, Wednesday night, I think it was, he was over. And I said to him, I said, it's time to update our confessions. And I confessed some stuff, and he shared some stuff, and we just went back and forth for a little bit. This is a regular part. Now, hear me for a second. If we're ever going to walk with full access to God and experience all of his freedom and fullness for us, we're going to have to walk in the light with God and others.
0: One of the things uh, that Rob writes about, I've written about it as well. Um, I, in our circles, I was probably the first one to do it. A, I'm the oldest and B, probably one of the worst early on. So I just, I thought, I've got this pattern I can't shake. I've done spiritual disciplines, fasted and prayed, I've done sort of everything. It just, this was sort of a compulsion that just nothing seemed to work. And I thought, I'm gonna get a trusted friend and an older man of wisdom and ask him for a few hours and do a a total life confession. Well, I I gotta admit, these aren't fun.
1: No, not at all.
0: And I got part way through and I remember looking up to my buddy and I said to him, I feel like I wanna stop. And he goes, no, you've come this far, you might as well finish. And I said, am I gonna be okay? He goes, it's just a little humiliating keep going. And so I did. And we're done, turned to the older man of wisdom and said, is there anything to break? I don't, what do you sense? And he goes, no, we'll take care of a couple of things and uh, you'll you'll be good. That was 24 and a half years ago. Compulsion broke that day. Never come back. But I've walked in the light. Yeah. And so what, what we've done is just made that Remember the time when Rob goes, I kind of need you to listen to mine? We've done it with lots and lots of people. And um, again, not a sanitized version, um, but just a, an honest, let's just sort of get it out there, whatever it is. So there's a no pretend policy. So now, I never mean, once in a while it takes a little longer, but it's just like here's sort of the day. thing that's, it's sort of like you've got a dirt pile on the floor. Let's take care of that before it gets spread out all over. Let's just take care of it while it's a small dirt pile. Take care of it. And unfortunately, because we've talked about it, we have had to do this with far too many people. It's true. But that's why we love doing this in places like this, because you can be the safe other person for somebody else. To feel like they've finally gotten free of this thing that's somehow
1: had a hold for a far too long. So let me give you a final exhortation on this, and then I'm going to talk about the second area where God wants access. I don't think you're ever going to walk in freedom until you have no secrets. Secrets are incredibly destructive to the soul. They're toxic to the soul. And some of you in this room have secrets. As a matter of fact, I'm going to state it slightly stronger. A bunch of you in this room have secrets because I can feel it. I've done this for a long time. And what I want to tell you is you'll never find the freedom, fullness that Christ has for you until you ditch those secrets. I want to tell you the positive side of this. While it's incredibly painful in my own family history, there's been a ton of sexual immorality. I went to Martin in my early thirties and said to him, I said, I need to walk through sexual immorality in my family's history. Um, I've struggled with lust. I, I got married. I thought when I got married, that would eliminate lust. Yeah, that didn't work. And so I said, now I need to be able to walk through this with you. And we sent a, a, a day in the parking lot together just talking through, and I did a a total confession on this stuff. But I want, I want you to hear this. This is the power of having no secrets. When I wake up tomorrow morning, I'm going to get up and I'm going to take a shower, and the guy I'm looking at in the mirror is the guy that Martin knows. Yeah. That's the man I have presented. There are four people in my life who know everything about me. Ron Walborn, Martin Sanders, Rich Schmidt, and my wife, Jen. I don't have any secrets with those four people. It is an incredible thing to look yourself in the mirror and know that the person you've presented is the person you are, and there's no gap. What is powerful about it is this. If somebody ever comes up to me and says, but you did this, I go, yeah, but Martin knows that. Jen knows that. Ron knows that. Heck, I wrote that one in my book, Soul Care. That one's public knowledge, okay? Because I'm really honest about this stuff. But man, it's freeing. But shame grows in the dark, So here's our exhortation to you. Get rid of your secrets. Give him access. It's the one thing he most wants. Second area where he wants access. A dozen years
0: ago, I wrote a book called How to Get the Family You've Always Wanted, which is not an ideal family or an idealized one. But it's just have a goal you're shooting for. Because the first hundred people I interviewed and said, tell me what kind of family you want. The most common response is, I want a good family. Like, no one said, I want one of those kind of families that embarrasses you at every turn. Like, you know, when they're young, the principal's office is on speed dial. When they get older, it's the police department. (laughs) Nobody says they want to feel like that. You may get one of those for a little while. But uh, there's a chapter in the book called Dealing with Family Myths and Lies and Secrets. The first 50 people I sent it to, Um, 43 of them came back and said "Eh, Martin, the book's pretty good But that chapter should have been the whole book And so now I've gotten hundreds Just hundreds of responses That said, will you please write this book And actually it was interesting One of them was a um, a family member of Billy Graham And she said "Uh, Martin, please write a book on this Because every family has secrets And then the email said Remember who I am. Every family has secrets. I've now had more than 25 families offer to be the case study um, for family secrets. So sometimes it's not yours, yeah. it's extended family, and you just don't talk about things. The family's made that clear, and you've capitulated. Yeah. So sometimes bringing
1: things into the light isn't just your stuff. It's an extended family thing as well. It's yeah. true. Secondary God wants access is to our grudges and anger and bitterness. So let's talk about this one because it's such a fun topic to talk about. We love talking about our anger and bitterness. Um, the reality is not only do we need to receive forgiveness, we need to extend forgiveness. Ephesians chapter 4, 26 and 7 Uh, Paul writes, in your anger, do not sin. Notice it's not a sin to be angry. He's just saying when you're angry, just be more careful because you're more likely to sin. So slow it down. You know, be careful. Then he makes this statement, do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. In other words, deal with it quickly, immediately. Process it. And then he says, and do not give the devil a foothold. Literally, the Greek word here is the word we get topography from. It's topos in Greek. It means at times in the Greek text, an inhabited place. What he's saying is this. If you will hold on to your grudges, the enemy will have access to you. Hear me for a second. In a spiritual world, you are always giving access to spiritual beings. You are either giving access to God But if you refuse to give God access, he shines the light into the suitcase and says, you see that right there? That's a grudge. That's bitterness. I need you to release that person. I need you to forgive that person. You refuse to give him access. The enemy gets access to the suitcase of your soul. That's what Paul's warning about. He understood the spiritual realm and the principle of access, and he knew he needed to deal with this. So let's just deal with two things under forgiveness. First, real quick, we want to just give you a sort of big principle of why to forgive. And then secondly, we really want to talk to you about how to forgive. Let's start with the why. Matthew chapter 18, Jesus tells a parable that you're familiar with, and I won't take time to read it just for the sake of time tonight, but the parable is the parable of the the unmerciful servant. And the gist of the story goes like this, There's there's a guy who's really wealthy. He has a servant that's working for him. The servant owes him a ridiculous sum of money. If you look at the ridiculous sum of money, this guy's a day laborer and he owes him 20 years worth of wages, okay? He's never got a chance to pay him back. He cannot make enough money in his lifetime to possibly repay the debt. By the way, parenthetical note, the reason why that's so important is because the only way you could accumulate this kind of debt is to live a completely irresponsible, reckless life. That's what you have to understand about this servant. He's got this huge debt. You know the story. He comes to the master. The master's going to throw him in jail, send his family off to, you know, slavery and him. That was a common practice for economic debt in the day. And the guy falls on his knees, begs to the master, have pity on me, and I'll pay back every penny. Could not have paid back every pay. The master has pity on him, cancels the debt. Guy leaves the master's presence, goes, gets one of his fellow servants who owes him one day's wage. A crappy day's wage. And he shakes the guy out. The guy speaks the same phrase. Have pity on me. I'll pay back every penny. Could easily have paid it back. Throws him in jail. Then there's this phrase. You always have to watch out for these phrases in Scripture. There's this phrase about the master found out, you know, but the master found out, you know. And he was ticked. He calls the guy in, He says to him, you wicked servant, I had mercy on you. Shouldn't you have had mercy the same way on your fellow servant? Then he has him thrown into jail, tortured by the jailers, till he should pay back every penny. And, you know, I got to read this verse because there's just some verses in the Scriptures that I wish weren't there. Do you ever ever notice there's some verses you wish you could erase? So here's one of the verses that I wish I could erase. It's Matthew chapter 18. If you want to turn there with me it's really worth reading out loud. Matthew 18, verse 35. This is how he ends. This is his final statement. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Don't you wish that wasn't in your Bible? (laughs) But the reason why i need to turn there is because it's in your Bible right there. See, mine's in red ink. This is how your heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from the heart. Here's the point of the parable. It is ridiculous for us to hold someone in our debt given the massive amount of forgiveness that the Father has extended to you through the blood of His Son. It's just ridiculous. As a result, um, I don't want to give the enemy a foothold. I don't want to give the enemy access. I don't want to be tortured by the jailers, which are the demonic beings. And I don't want to be a ridiculous person who doesn't forgive others, so I want to forgive those who sin against me. How about you? Yes. So the question is, how do you do it? Let me give you a couple of really practical steps on forgiving. Here's the first one. But when, when I feel hurt, deeply hurt by someone, and I'm, I'm starting to feel anger build inside my spirit, I can feel it accumulating in the suitcase right alongside of the dirty sock called hurt is anger. When that happens, the first thing I do is I start to fix my eyes on the grace of God. I remember and soak in God's grace for me. This is where I begin. See, by the way, this is where the, in the parable the guy went wrong. He didn't remember the master's grace. He only remembered the servant's offense. When you forget the master's grace and remember the offense, you are always in trouble. So remember grace. What I do is literally, I I study scriptures that talk about grace. I meditate on passages like Jesus' death on the cross. This one, Matthew 18, that I just talked to you about. I sing songs and soak in music that sings of the grace of God. And then, if that's not softening up my heart, I will literally take out a a legal pad and I'll start journaling on all the things that I have done that God has forgiven me. I got to tell you, by the second page, I'm finding I'm a lot more gracious to people who've sinned against me because I got a pretty long list of stuff the Father has forgiven. And I dare say, so do you. So remember grace. Second, you got to bless those who curse you. Luke chapter 6, talks about blessing those who curse you. So years ago, this, this <clears throat> was my first pastoral assignment. I was an associate pastor. I was on my first month of the job, and I walked into the office one day. I'm 25 years old. I walk into the office one day, and the secretary's the only one in there, and I said to her, hey, Charlene, good morning. How are you? She goes, uh, hey, how are you? Nice to see you. She goes, do, do, do you know Oscar? And I'm thinking, I don't think I've met Oscar. You know, there's a lot of people in the church and, and there was multiple egresses, you know, doorways out of the building and so forth. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm brand new. I've only been here a month. I'm not, you know, people don't attend every week. I, I, I'm not sure. I said to her, can you describe him? She goes, well, he, you know, he has an accent. She described his accent. I'm, oh, oh, no, I haven't met anybody like that. No. I, I said, why? She goes, well, she goes, I was out for breakfast this morning and he stopped by the table and he said, you're in an adulterous affair. I said, could you describe him one more time for me? Because I want to get to know Oscar. I said, could you you show me his picture? Because I definitely want to get to know Oscar. So I'm like, I'm not in an affair. I said, I haven't even been here long enough to get in trouble, you know. I'm married now 27 and a half years. The only person I've ever been with is my wife, you know. So that's just crap. Uh, That's a Greek word. You can look it up later on. So I'm like, that's ridiculous. I said, I don't know what this guy's problem is. So anyways, you know, I went into the senior pastor. I called the guy first. You know, I gave the guy a call, and he wouldn't return my call. Big surprise. And so I went into the senior pastor, and I said to the senior pastor, hey, listen, I said, this guy made an accusation against me. Would you set up a meeting with this guy? And he goes, oh, no, 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 no. We don't want to do that. And I'm like, oh, yeah, we do want to do that. And I said, I want to sit down and talk to this guy. No, no, no. Go, he was avoiding conflict, wouldn't do it. And I said, you know, I don't know what to do now. So, uh, you know, I, I, just, I just kind of prayed and waited. I don't know, it's two weeks later or something like that. I see somebody else. I'm out to breakfast, and they come up to me and said, hey, do you know Oscar? I'm like, "I'm, I'm getting to know Oscar. I've heard of him for sure. I said, why? And they said, well, I said, I was talking to him the other day, and he told me that you stole money from the church. I said, well, I'm the associate pastor. They don't give me access to the money. I said, that's just stupid. That's, you know, they never do that. So I said, I don't even have access to money. This is completely crazy. I said, you know, and when they pass the offering plate, I sit in the front row. There's no money in it. When it comes by, I can't even steal money out of the plate. I don't even have access to the money. It's the only time I see the money. It passes by. I'm putting it in. That's so stupid. So now I'm really mad, Right. And so again, I go to the senior pastor. Hey, can we talk to this guy? No, we don't want to do that. I'm like, yeah, we really do want to do that. Trust me, I'm the one being assassinated here. Come on. And he's like, no, no, no. So I'm like, all right, well, you know, I keep praying. By the way, I finally met Oscar. I'd see him on Sunday. You know, one day walking past me on a Sunday morning. You know, he shakes my hand, going out the door, and the secretary comes up to me and goes, "That's Oscar." I said, "That's Oscar." We kick him on the way by, you know. So, anyways, uh, I don't know. It's a couple weeks later, a month later, two months. I don't remember. Uh, One day, I get a phone call. It's the district superintendent on the phone. He says to me, "Uh, hey, bud, how are you? I said, oh, I'm all right, Neil. How are you? He He goes, I'm all right. He goes, I had a phone call this morning. He said, do you know Oscar? I'm like, yes, Neil, I have heard of Oscar. Why? He goes, well, he called me this morning and said, you're in an adulterous affair and you stole money from the church. I said to him, well, at least his lies are consistent, Neil and he said to me he goes listen he goes i know the guy's telling lies he goes he's done this to other pastors before you i said well why didn't take somebody take him out back and shoot him neil he goes we have considered that he goes actually he goes i think the guy's mentally ill he goes i just called you to tell you look out he's out to get you i said well thank you he prayed with me i hung up the phone i'm telling you i was so mad i don't think i've ever been that mad in my life i'm walking in my backyard And I am, I am spitting fire. And I got my Bible with me because I'm about ready to pick up the imprecatory psalms. Do you know the imprecatory psalms? Those are the psalms where David prays, God, kill my enemy, make them suffer, you know, (laughs) make their children suffer. You know, I love those psalms. And I'm like, Lord, I'm going to pray some of those psalms on this guy. And I hear him. The Holy Spirit speaks to me. He goes, Luke 6. I go, oh, no, no, no. You aren't duping me into looking at no New Testament stuff. I know that Luke's six. That's Jesus telling me to bless those who curse me. You don't believe that stuff. Of course, as I'm saying that, I'm thinking, Jesus, Father, forgive them. They know not. All right, you believe it. But you don't really expect me to bless this guy. And God goes dead silent on me. Can I tell you when God usually goes silent on you? When he's already told you what to do and you've refused to listen. The time God is most silent is when he's already shined the light and you've refused access. And I hate the silence of God because I love his presence. So finally, I'm like, all right, Lord, here's the deal. I will pray blessings on this man, but I don't believe a word of it. I don't mean any of it i'm doing it because i love you i don't even want you to bless this guy but i'm going to do it at a sheer obedience and so if you want me to mean it you got to make me mean it because all i can do is obey he said that's good enough i said okay so i started praying blessings on this guy and this is how it started and it's a little tongue-in-cheek but not much i'm like okay god here you go <sighs> I pray his wife would like him. I don't know how. He's an idiot. But I pray his wife would not hate his guts. Uh, I pray his children would not grow up to be morons like he is. I don't even know how that's possible. People see what, you know, people do what people see. But I pray somehow or another they escape his clutches. Uh, You know, I, I prayed. But what you need to understand is I prayed for this guy every single day. I mean, day in, day out, week in, week out, month in, month out. I never stopped praying. I never missed a single day. The entire time he's cursing me, every single week, I heard more stuff that he had said against me, and I never stopped praying blessings on him. Not once. Every day. Finally, one day he passes me by the door, you know, and he does what he always does, his false smile, grabs my hand, shakes my hand, and goes, oh, it's so good to see you, he says. And I said to him, Oscar, it's good to see you. And when I said it, I felt the love of God burst in my inner being for that man. That was the day I learned an invaluable lesson in my life. If you'll do what God tells you to do, God will do what you cannot do. He will change your heart. You know what we do too often? We go, God, you change my heart, and then I'll obey you. He goes, I've already changed your heart in the heavenly realms. If you obey me, you will appropriate the victory I've established for you. But you need to obey. And it starts with blessing those who curse you.
0: One of the things that we've already talked about tonight is uh, that when things are aligned with God, we have fellowship with one another. Um, I've learned a lot about this blessing people from Rob and also our friend we mentioned, our friend Ron <laughs> Walburn. Um, but my issue forever was just always for people who were like Oscar. I just, I'm just not a resentful, bitter person. I just sort of ignore them. and. Um, don't don't pay attention, but probably in reality, am dismissive towards them. Like probably treat them like they don't exist as a person or don't deserve to, and just it was nothing bad, just yeah, whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, Rob was one of my students um, tw- twenty seven years ago. He sit in class. He was a back row kind of student. <laughs> and uh, true. And I. I just said to him, look, I'll stay connected to you if you want for a decade. And that was now almost 27 years ago. And I love it because I've learned how to do this from him and from our friend Ron. uh, Because they don't dismiss people. They engage with them. And it's taught me how to love better. Again, fellowship with one another. Uh, Become a better, not just lover of God, but of his love for even the more annoying among us. And so we learn this from each other. So that's part of this weekend. As you listen to each other, as we pray with each other, you'll develop a depth in your own heart and soul that didn't exist before by listening to other people grapple through their things as well. It's true. This blessing other people is a big deal. It's a big one.
1: Third thing. If we're going to forgive people, we need to offer forgiveness according to the level of offense. So, give me a word. I'll give you a word picture just to work with it. But let's say, you know, that I say something against Martin, and I commit a five-gallon offense against him. And he's my friend, and he comes up to me and says, hey, when you said that, that really hurt me. And I, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And what I'm doing is I'm offering him a cup worth of apology. But I've committed a five-gallon offense because he's a nice guy. Oh, I forgive you. It's okay. But then, you know, a week later, we're hanging out again, and he goes, hey, when you said that the other day, that really hurt me. And I go, I know, but we talked about that. I asked you to forgive me, and you forgave me. He goes, I, I know. I'm like, well, why are we bringing it up? I don't know. I'll tell you why. Because it was a five-gallon offense, and you've exchanged a cup worth of forgiveness. Married people, family members... We do this to each other all the time. This is why we repeat conversations and we don't make any progress. It's because there's a five-gallon offense and we've been exchanging a cup worth of forgiveness. Jen and I had one conversation the first five years of our marriage that predated marriage. It was when we were engaged and I had hurt her in some way. Now, I don't remember the way anymore, but I remember we repeated this conversation over and over until finally one day in the middle of the night, we were, we were having an argument over this issue, and I finally felt the pain I had committed. I literally dropped to the knees, cried, and asked her forgiveness. And when I did, I made a five-gallon apology, she made five gallons of forgiveness, and we never had to talk about this issue again. So long ago now, I don't even remember the issue. But what I do remember is the exchange that took place in our relationship. And that was the day I realized a lot of times we keep saying, you know, hey, you know, when you did that, it really hurt me. And I'm like, well, I mean, I keep asking you to forgive me, and you keep saying you forgive me. How can we keep talking about this issue? The answer is you didn't drain the tank. Now, I want you to hear me for a second about this. Forgiveness can be given to someone unilaterally. This is really important. The reason why it's so important, let's go back to the offense with Martin. If I commit a five-gallon offense against Martin and he says to me, hey, you really hurt me, and I go, I don't care. You're thin-skinned. Get over it. The good news is he can forgive me unilaterally. He does not need me to own anything. He does not need me to repent for anything. And that's a gift from God to you because if that were not true, you would always be bound by the will of another. My refusal to own my part would cause him forever to be in my debt but that's not true you have the right to forgive someone all by yourself it's simply an act of the will okay
0: because we live out life and faith in larger structures family structures community of faith communities one of the things that so many of us have never really learned to do is how do you actually give a, a good apology now i remember exactly it was 8 years ago I was uh, thinking about our family, and I thought, well, yeah, we really suck at apologies. Uh, we've got a lot of strengths, but we're not good at apologizing to each other. And I thought, I wonder why. And I figured out, I think it's my fault. I don't think I modeled well. Um, you know, men in my life died. My brothers killed in a car accident. My dad died before I turned 15. I, I, life was tough for me. And in my mind, life was good for my kids, and they would, they would do stupid kid stuff, and they'd go, sorry, Dad. And, and in my mind, it was this very thing. It, was, it deserved way more than that. And I think I taught them their apologies weren't good enough. And I started looking around, and the, this, the same people who wrote The One-Minute Manager wrote a book called The One-Minute Apology. <coughs> and so I said, hey, we're going to get together for Thanksgiving, I'm going to send all of you a book of the One Minute Apology. I'd like you to read it before you come for Thanksgiving. And we're going to update and learn a skill as a family on how to do good apologies. And I say, if you can't read the whole book, read these two chapters. If you can't read these two chapters, read these seven pages. If you can't read these seven pages, make sure you have these three paragraphs. We're going to do this. And we did. And it started with me apologizing as the dad. For not modeling apologies well. Now, uh, some of you know this, but not all of you do. It was just a little over a year later that Diana began having all sorts of neurological symptoms, and for what we had to go through over a several-year period, that was so crucial. Yeah. So this isn't just about you and forgiveness. We live out life and faith in community. Learn this one. Learn this one well. It makes such a difference. You'll have conversations you've never had before with the people you love the most.
1: Fourth thing forgiveness is an act of the will. You know, forgiveness is a gift that is granted by the offended party, it is never deserved or earned. Hmm. You don't wait around for someone to apologize, you don't wait around for someone to change. Now, hear me for a second. There is a difference between forgiveness and trust trust is earned forgiveness is a gift i'll go back to this story with martin so if i commit this 5 gallon offense against him he can forgive me all by himself he doesn't need me to own anything however while forgiveness is unilateral reconciliation is bilateral the only way it can occur is i need to own my full 5 gallon of offense And apologize a five gallon apology he needs to offer me then five gallons worth of forgiveness and I need to change to earn his trust when those things happen reconciliation can take place hear me no matter how bad the hurt but only when those three things happen he needs to own his part and forgive I need to own my part and apologize And I need to change to bring trust that's the only way it can happen okay that's how it works so our job when we're the forgiver the one who has to forgive is to release the other person from our debt and that means we are making the choice not to nurse the grudge or rehearse the offense. We're not going to bring it up in our mind. We're not going to have imaginary conversations with the person. We're not going to hold on to it. We're not going to talk to other people about them, what a dirty rat they are. We're not going to engage in any of that stuff. As a matter of fact, when I'm tempted to, that's my trigger to bless the person. I'll tell you something about the enemy of your soul. He is going to try to tempt you to rehearse the grudge. He's going to tempt you to speak ill of the person. He is going to tempt you to have an imaginary conversation. And if every time he tempts you to do that, you pray a blessing on the person, he's going to stop tempting you because the last thing in the world he wants is for you to bless someone, and especially someone who's cursed you. So the temptations will cease. Therefore, we need to make a conscious decision to to live and die with no enemies. I made a commitment when I was in my 20s that I would die with no enemies. Hear me. If I die tonight, I have no enemies. There are people who do not like me, but the feeling is not mutual. As a matter of fact, I would say to you, the only reason they don't like me is because they lack discernment, because my father likes me, and he has perfect discernment. And if there are people in your life that you don't like, the only reason you don't like them is because you lack discernment, and the only reason I don't like them is because I lack discernment because he likes them. He died for them. So my job is to forgive them, release them, and I'm going to determine to hold no grudges, nurse no wounds, nurture no disappointments, hang on to no resentments, and process my anger and pain at all costs. All right, so here's your second area of access. If there's anybody that you're hanging on to in the suitcase of your soul with grudges, resentment, you need to give the Holy Spirit access tonight and say, I'm willing to release them. So what i to do is take a moment right now. I want you to have a piece of paper. You can write it on your iPhone, notepad, whatever it is, but take a moment right now. I'm gonna pray this prayer and just ask the Holy Spirit to bring light. Holy Spirit, I pray if there's anybody in our hearts that we are holding on to grudges, over, we have resentment towards, there are bitter roots towards, you would reveal those people to us in Jesus' name. And here's the rule, ready? If the Holy Spirit brings someone to mind, don't deny it, excuse it, rationalize it, justify it. Don't say, I already forgave them. If he brought it to mind, there's probably more in the five-gallon offense. Write it down, commit to pray blessings on them. Just take a moment to do that. Give them access I pray this prayer fairly regularly because bitterness, resentment, grudges easily accumulate in the soul. Uh, The reality is, you know, you live with people or you live in close proximity to people who hurt you and are slow to change, just like you are. And when people hurt us in the same direction over a long period of time, it's easy to start to build up walls. And one of the walls we build up is the wall of Resentment and anger to protect ourselves. But the thing you have to understand about a shield that is trying to protect your heart from feeling pain is shields are always indiscriminate. Not only do they block out the person who is trying to hurt you, but they block out God from healing you. And the only way to give him access is to lay down the shield of anger. And so I have to pray this prayer regularly just to check in on it. One last thing. If we're going to give God access, there's one last area where I think we need to give Him access tonight that we need to talk about, and that is two negative emotions I want to specify. The first is fear. The second is disappointment. We need to give Him access to fear and disappointment. I want to speak to fear first very shortly, and then I want to speak to disappointment. The thing I want to say about fear is sometimes people are afraid to all kinds of things, that keeps them from giving God access, but specifically when it comes to the Holy Spirit. We are sometimes afraid of the Holy Spirit. And I just want to speak to this. Everywhere I go, I feel this. And I wasn't actually going to speak to it, but I got up here and I went, I got to speak to this. I could tell I do. And I I want to say this. Jesus is not afraid of the Holy Spirit.
0: Fear. I'd tweet that if I was you.
1: Fear is a tool of the enemy to keep you from the fullness of God. And as long as you embrace fear, you will never embrace the fullness of God. And so, you know, when he's accessing this stuff, we have to deal with this. So I'm going to tell you my own little story, and then I'll, I'll, I'll let you wrestle with it, and we'll talk about disappointment. When I was young, I was in my early 30s, uh, I had a group of Pentecostals that I had built relationship with down the road. And I was, it was my first ministry assignment, so I was actually in my 20s. I was in my mid-20s. And uh, I, was, I had built relationship with this group. It was a, a four-square gospel group of people. And so one night, the pastor and his wife had invited me to come to their prophetic intercession group. And I am like, I do not want to go to this prophetic intercession group, right? And I'll tell you what I felt was I felt fear. You know what I was afraid of? What I was afraid of was that they were going to, you know, know something about me, some secret about me. You know what was stupid? I didn't have any secrets. (laughs) I had already done a total life confession, already cleaned up all this stuff. I didn't have any secrets. I don't know what I was afraid of. That right there is fear of the Holy Spirit. Now, hear me. What I finally did was, Lord, I don't have any secrets. What I'm really afraid of is I think I'm afraid because I have not had some experiences with the Holy Spirit yet that I think they've had, and it makes me a little skittish. It was like the woman you told the story of about tongues. It was a fear-based thing. When we did Holy Spirit weekends, we'd pray for people. We would, you know, people would have this sense of the Spirit's presence. We'd have people get up and leave the room because they were afraid of a manifestation of the Spirit. Listen, can I say it again? Jesus is not afraid of the Holy Spirit. That is not from God. That is a tool of the enemy to keep you from the fullness of God. I, I, I was sitting with my family here in upstate New York was my in-laws, you know, and I was sitting around Thanksgiving one year, and, and we were all talking. It was during the time when the Toronto revival took place. Remember the, you know, stuff up there in airport church in Toronto, and, and it was a vineyard church and, you know, some, some pretty wild things were going on apparently, and so anyways, the one they focused on around the dinner table one night was holy laughter, and they were all mocking holy laughter. You see, and i have never experienced holy laughter. I still have not personally, but I've seen a lot of people I pray for who have. But here's what I had done. I had studied the history of revival. I have read on every revival that has ever taken place that is recorded that I could read upon. And what I started noticing was in every revival, the first Great Awakening, for example, with John Wesley, there was holy revival. I mean, holy laughter. The second Great Awakening with Charles Finney in upstate New York. There was holy laughter. John Hyde, who is called (laughs) Praying Hyde, was actually the first person that recorded the phrase holy laughter. He was the one who invented the phrase, at least the first one I've ever seen. And so I'm sitting there listening to them mock this revival, and all it was was fear of the Holy Spirit stuff. And I said to them, hey, guys, I said, I'm an in-law, right? So I'm an outlaw. You know how that works, right? So uh, I said to them, guys, I said, uh, can I interject a thought into this conversation? They said, yeah. And I said, have any of you ever, you know, sort of heard of the first great Awakening? Oh, of course. And I said, you know, that was the one under Wesley and Jonathan Edwards and so forth. They said, yeah. I said, uh, you would consider that an authentic move of God, wouldn't you? And they said, oh, yeah. And I said, do you know that they experienced holy laughter? Dead quiet. I said, they didn't use the phrase, but they described the phenomenon. As a matter of fact, John Edwards' wife, Jonathan Edwards' wife, experienced holy laughter. And she was a Presbyterian. Dear God. (laughs) And then I said, "Uh, did you ever hear about the one under Finney called the Second Great Awakening? They're like, yeah. I said, yeah. I said, "Uh, they experienced holy laughter. Wesley, by the way, was a good Brit, you know, so he was totally in control of his emotions. So when these things started breaking out, manifestations of the Holy Spirit, people be crying, laughing, weeping, falling over, Wesley would send them home. He would go, hey, things are getting out of control. Everyone go home. He would send them home. He'd come back the next night, and the whole thing would break out again, and he would send them home. Finally, he looked at his brother Charles one night, and he goes, this stuff makes me uncomfortable. Some of this stuff, though, is God. And if we shut it down, we're going to close off God from this revival. Now, hear me one last time. Fear is a tool of the enemy to keep you from the fullness of God. When you are afraid, you do not give him access. You shut it down. Now, my word for you, you can trust him. He's good. Just give him access. The second one that I want to talk about besides fear is disappointment. For a lot of us, you know what happens is we're praying for more of God, you know. We're praying for something from God. We're praying for a miracle. We're praying for a healing. We're praying for a miraculous provision, whatever it is, and it doesn't happen the way we want, when we want, how we want, what we expected. It doesn't work out, and you know what? We get disappointed, and when we get disappointed with God, often we take offense, And when we're disappointed with God and we take offense, we stop giving Him access. If I could tell you what is at the root of access is trust. It is fundamentally about trust. We trust He is so good, we can trust Him no matter what. That's what allows us to give access. I can give access to the bitterness because I can trust Him that it's better to forgive than it is to hold on. I can give access to the secrets because I can trust him that it's better to offload the secret than to keep it with me in the suitcase of the soul. And I can trust him with the manifestations of the Holy Spirit because he's good. And it's better to give him access and have his fullness than to continue to deny him access because of my fear. And it's often these offenses that keep us. What happens is, you know, a lot of times the offense keeps us from faith. The disappointment keeps us from faith. You know, Jesus is only amazed twice in the gospel. Only two times. When Jesus is only something twice, you ought to take notice of it. Twice he's amazed. The first time is in his hometown. Remember? He's amazed at their lack of faith so he could do few miracles there. The second time he's amazed is also over faith. But this one, he's amazed at the centurion's great faith. So he does a miracle in proxy. He doesn't even have to show up. He calls it out from a distance because of the great faith, okay? If the only two times Jesus is ever amazed is at faith, either great or none, wouldn't it be a noble-hearted thing to live our lives in such a way that we sought to amaze Jesus with our faith? Could you imagine? Now, I grew up in New York just an hour from here. New Yorkers aren't known for faith. We're known for skepticism and suspicion. And it's keeping us from the fullness of God. It's time to trust him. He's a good father. I got one last story I'll tell if you, if you want to wrap up now or you want me to tell mine now. You go first. All right. I'm going to tell my story. He's going to wrap up and then we're going to do an exercise with you. A number of years ago, I'd gotten really disappointed with God. I had a bunch of promises that hadn't come true and I was really disappointed with God. And uh, I got to a place where I said to Jen one night, I said, I can't keep doing this anymore. You know, I can't keep doing this thing ministry. I said, either I sort this thing out, and I trust him again, or I got to quit. But I'm not going to do it as a skeptic. I will not be, you know, a full-time pastor and a part-time Christian. So I need to figure this thing out. So with that, I called up my friend Ron Walborn one day. He was going through the midst of his deal with Diana's passing, and so I didn't want to trouble him too much. So we chatted once in a while, but mostly I was just trying to be there for him during that season, and so I called Ron up. Plus, Ron had been through something like this, and I had called Ron, and I said to him, I need a day of your life. Now, Ron's a really, really busy guy, but he's a really dear friend, and he said to me, anytime, when do you want it, which I love him for that. I said to him, but I said, I'll tell you what, I'll make as fun for you as I can. I said, I'll drive down to New York. He's a Pirate fan. He grew up in Pittsburgh. I said, I'll take you to a Pirates playoff game. I said, well, process with you on the way down, and uh, I'm feeling incredible disappointment. I said, if I could sum up what I feel in a sentence, it would be this, I'm wrestling with the question, does God lie? And I said, it's not a theological battle. I understand the answer theologically. My problem is not theological. My problem is emotional. I feel so disappointed. It feels like he lies. And I said, you can relate to it, I know, because I had a conversation with you where I, you know, I had asked him about what he was struggling with, and he had told me he wrestled with this question, does God lie? So I said, I know you relate to it. So I said, I want to just process with you. I said, so I'll process with you on the way down to Pittsburgh. We'll we'll watch the game together. We'll have fun, and then I'll process with you on the way home. And I said, it'll give me plenty of time to sort of empty the suitcase. He said, okay. So I drive down to New York. We drive from New York at the time. I was living in Boston. Now I'm living in New York at Nyack as an associate pastor, as a professor there. And so I... Drive to Pittsburgh with them and I'm just unpacking, man. Hear me for a second, when you unpack disappointment with God, it doesn't look neat and tidy, it looks like dirty laundry. Most midlife crises really come down to it, accumulated disappointments that we've never processed properly. That's what they are. And if you live your life long enough, you will be disappointed. And to me, I'd, I'd lived long enough to be disappointed. So I'm unpacking everything. I'm disappointed with. I got all kinds of promises. They haven't come true. One of them came to me in an audible voice from the Lord, and it still has not come to pass. I had all these things, and I'm so disappointed. And I'm just—I am—I'm letting it fly, man. I am not filtering anything. I am ticked. I am angry. I am disappointed. I am offended. And I packed it out unpacked it all the way down all the way back finally at the end of this conversation he looked at me and he said two things to me first he said to me Rob you believe this stuff to your core keep preaching it and then he said to me secondly he goes bud you're an intense guy you need to have more fun and I thought to myself that is really stupid advice (laughs) What the hell does that have to do with anything I was so annoyed But I I took him to heart. But hear me, this is how I did it. I determined that I was going to have fun with a grateful heart, that every good gift comes from my Father above. And I participated in every fun thing I could think of with a grateful heart. And after several months, you know what it did? It restored the goodness of God to the center of my soul. I unpacked all the disappointments and I packed in all of the goodness of God, my trust was restored and I was able to trust and give him full access again. It was only at the end of that season that I've seen the greatest miracles of God in my life. If I hadn't gone through that season, I could not have seen the things I was about to see. For some of you. You are really one processing season away from your greatest season with God. But if you don't process the disappointments and give him access, you'll never see your greatest seasons.
0: I was speaking at church probably slightly larger than this at a town slightly smaller than this. And we'd had a couple of good Sunday morning services, and they had... assigned me to have dinner with a family and she was a renowned cook in a rural farm sense. And uh, the pastor made an interesting statement about her. He said, she's probably the best Christian I've ever met. I wanted to say to him, how do you quantify that? Like, what's the benchmark? What's the measuring stick? And I I said to him, I don't think you should say that about anybody ever. That's almost like a curse upon them. So don't, don't, don't do that. So I was kind of anxious to sit with them and figure out who's, who's the most impressive Christian this pastor's ever met. And she was known to be a good cook, and I thought, that's going to be good. And we, we, had a, we had a pleasant day, and I was getting ready to head back to church because there was an evening sort of service, apparently for the remedial people who come back for the other services. They didn't get enough on Sunday morning. Sorry, that was funnier in my head. But (laughs) (laughs) I said, uh, I got ready to leave, and I said, uh, I'll see you later tonight. And she goes, what what are you speaking on? And I said, I'm speaking on how to welcome the Spirit in your life. Now this woman who had been pleasant, laughed, she, she, she really was kind of a really intriguing person face just changed. And she said, I won't be coming tonight. I said, okay, but that's an interesting response. I mean, your whole face and everything's changed. Like, Can I just simply ask why? And she said, that stuff doesn't work for me. So you've got to tell me more. And she said, "Uh, I've probably asked for the fullness of the Spirit I don't remember, she gave a number, she said several times, and she, she said, it never took. And I thought, that's really bad theology, but that's probably not the right thing to say to her. And I said, I understand. It's just, there's a, there's a longing with a corresponding disappointment. And I said, don't come because I'm speaking. But will you trust him one more time? Just trust him one more time for that stuff you long for. And she said, probably not. And she just turned and walked away. So I was there. It was a pretty full house for a Sunday night. Lots of remedial people, apparently. <laughs> and I, I looked back, and she came in late. And she was nearest to the door you could get. And uh, short sermon. Uh, request for just to come be prayed for all over the place. And people responded well, and spirit really seemed to meet people. I was off praying for people. I didn't pay much attention, and happened to stand back up on the platform. Notice she wasn't there. Thought uh, she must have snuck out early. And. Uh, I got a phone call the next morning before I flew home. And she, she just simply said, Th- thanks for pushing me. I said, I don't think I was very pushy. She said, Th- thanks for just pushing me to trust him one more time. She said, in the most quiet but profound way, he broke through my disappointments. And I received something deeper than I ever imagined. She said, it's not what I pictured in my head. But, but this thing is significant. So keep walking in it by faith, hon. Glad you came. It's a simple phrase. Bring the disappointment. Trust him one more time. He's
1: trustworthy. So here's what we want to do. You know, if you're going to have a weekend where you're really going to give God access, you've got to deal with the stuff that's packed in the suitcase. And so for the next five to ten minutes, I want you to sit alone with the Lord, and I want you to do business. For some of you, there's some stuff in the suitcase that's just plain old sin, this dark secret stuff. Man, honestly, you're never going to see the fullness of God until you get rid of it. For some of you, there's bitterness. And for some of you, there's fear and some other emotions in there like disappointment that need to to get unpacked. So just allow the Holy Spirit access. Just say, Lord, shine light. Whatever's in the suitcase, I want to get it out because what I want is all that you have for me. Take that moment alone with the Lord, and I'm going to tell you right now, some of you, tonight, it's not going to be enough for you to spend time alone with the Lord. You're going to have to come up and receive prayer. And so take time alone with the Lord first, but some of you, there's going to be a prayer team here, and some of you are just going to have to come up and receive prayer. Uh, some of you are going to have to confess something in order to get free. Some of you are going to have to forgive someone in order to really experience the next level with God. And you may need to process some stuff. So take a moment first with the Lord, and then there will be a prayer team here. And Nate's uh, got to, He's to play. Pray, play in the background as you do.
0: I'd like to invite the prayer team forward, elders and people that um, called to pray tonight to the front. Off to the side here on the stage. And if you need to pray or to walk through anything with the Holy Spirit and another person, um, like we talked about tonight, please come forward for prayer. So if I could invite the prayer team forward now,
1: just to hang out around the edges. That I know is that a lot of times the Holy Spirit is trying to nudge us towards something, but it's outside our comfort zone. And sometimes the only way He can get access is if we step outside our comfort zone. And so, for some of you, you're really sensing, if you're not, that's fine. But some of you are actually really sensing you should step out. And some of you just need to come up front, be alone with the Lord. Some of you need to go to somebody to pray. Don't resist. If he's not in you, just say yes.